Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Everybody. Hi, Hi, Dr. Dr. Nick. <laughs> yes, hello everybody, it's Dr. Nick here again, and welcome to Radiotherapy Live, online and on podcast. So, break out the shorts, t-shirts and thongs, because it's the first day of summer. And, oh, yeah, of course, it's Melbourne, isn't it? So, it's, um, it's 14 degrees and cloudy. Can, okay, question without notice to our illustrious panel here. Anyone here expert on meteorology? As in the weather. Mm. As in the mm. weather. The weather. Oh, so, yeah, can anyone yeah, explain to me that so northerly winds normally warm? Yes. So, how come I'm cycling up Nicholson Street from the city into a howling northerly and it's 14 degrees? Because it's Melbourne. Because it's Melbourne. Okay, there's the explanation. That's all we need. Melbourne should be, you know, in the tourist attractions, in the, you know, in our stuff that we send out to people to persuade people to come here on holiday we should have something about you know the biggest attraction of melbourne is its weather yeah that's and just I think, sit and watch the prepared. weather that incredible capacity to go from 41 degrees to 19 it's amazing so anyway perfect weather isn't it to curl up in bed with another cup of coffee and stay with us keep us company here on radiotherapy and those dulcet tones you heard were those of our resident psychologist guru and guru on all matters of mind body and soul rainbow doc good to see you rainbow good morning lovely to have you here and sitting next to rainbow our own pot of gold Fresh from her travels, our resident scientist, researcher, psychotherapist, Prudence Deer. Oh, it's lovely to feel like I should, I'm at the end of the rainbow or something. Exactly. And a pot of gold. And it's lovely to be back. I missed you all. Yes, I missed you all last month. So I did. Oh, I was over in Vietnam. Oh, just had the weather was lovely. It was always very consistent. It's 32 degrees. You know, it's like Darwin. 32 degrees, late storm. Perfect. I can't keep up with your travels. but <laughs> Keeping this whole show on the road, the man who can manage all the knobs and buttons and intelligent comment all at the same time. Welcome to the dulcet tones of panel beater. No, panel beaters, dulcet tones are hamstrung by the absence of a mic. So now we'll get the dulcet tones. Here's a dulcet tone coming through live. There was no consent there. You know that? He's been forced onto the microphone just no, then. Joys of live radio. Anyway, today, today, today's not just the first day of summer, but it's also World AIDS Day. So we'll be having a look at where we're up to with HIV and AIDS. And with the giving season nearly upon us, we'll also be talking about presence in the healthcare setting. Should your doctor accept that expensive bottle of red? Yes. Um, and later, later in the show, we'll be looking at some new research that shows what many of us have suspected for a long time, that calcium and vitamin D supplements are, for most people, not just unnecessary, but possibly even dangerous. But before that, we're going to have some news. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Rainbow, um, you've got some news for us. Yes, for well, Thursday, um, the Mental Health Royal Commission handed down its interim report, and um, should stress that the interim report, or it was stressed, I should say, the interim report was not a draft report. It was an interim report brought down because of the urgency of some of the recommendations in it. Um, 
there were over 8,000 submissions to the Royal Commission. There have been uh, over 8,000, although the website actually says that there are around about 3,000 submissions, which I actually applaud this because it means the money isn't going into the administration of this thing. Hopefully <laughs> the money is going elsewhere. Um, um, but the final report comes out in October, but on Thursday um, certain recommendations were made. Um, we heard, uh, as this was announced, that 3.1% of people in Victoria are living with mental health difficulties yeah, at the moment, wanting care. This and is 3.1% currently at any yeah, and particular the f- time. The funding actually only meets the requirements of 1.1%. So I'm not a mathematician, but that means one in roughly one in three people who need some kind of support aren't unable to get it. Um, I'd, I'd like to actually applaud everyone that has put into this commission because the very process of doing that for some people is re-traumatising. Yeah. So um, uh, it's, it's, in, it's amazing that it's happened. Um, but in Victoria, this report has found that, uh, the commission has found that Victoria actually has the worst funding in Australia in terms of mental health, which I was quite surprised by, but that's the case. And hopefully these recommendations will go some way into uh, changing that. So, so, so th- what so, are the recommendations? So Is it just throw a bucket of money? What, what's so the announced was um, a tax or levy to be implemented next year um, for specifically for mental health. Um, 170 additional beds for adolescents and adults for uh, in inpatient care, um, aftercare suicide, uh, aftercare uh, services for people who have attempted suicide, um, residential uh, a residential um, centre designed by people with lived experience, which is apparently a first. I was going to say that's really, that's that's quite unique in actually getting people who've had experience of being within the system, know what the pitfalls of it are, know where the shortcomings are, actually being involved in the design of the service delivery. Yeah, 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 this is, this is fantastic if this is happening. And I think some of this comes out of people that uh, may or may not have that experience being involved in the commission yeah, and uh, hearing from people with lived experiencing, lived experiencing, lived experience, and realizing that really they don't know very much. You know, I don't even as a practitioner in this area. You know, I I, I feel a lot of the time. I, I don't know. I'm not the expert. I don't know this. I need to hear people's stories. You so, know? so what's the timeline for this? Because there will be people who are really struggling now. We know that's been going on for a long time. It's all very well saying we're going to have a levy starting next year and 170 new beds. Sounds wonderful, but there must be a huge time lag before anything actually is going to happen. Oh, I don't know. That's the question. The, the, the other thing that, you know, the, the bit that uh, always gets my goat is that uh, all of the measures that have been announced are addressing the symptoms. And I'm not saying that, that, that the causes or the underlying problems that we have in, you know, uh, othering and marginalised communities are not being addressed in some way. But when these announcements are made, and certainly the way that the media coverage covers this, is that the link isn't made, you know, between cause or underlying context and symptom. 
Uh, it's always about dealing with the symptoms. Whereas if we don't go underneath that and work with, you know, problems within families, that if you want the core pain that lies underneath the symptom, um, we're just going to keep seeing these numbers um, uh, probably increasing, you know. So, um, you know, I would really like to see that happening, that that, that link is made and that the, the, the media covers it in that way so people understand this. Yeah, I think it's important because, yeah, I mean, we do tend to approach that sort of symptomatically and we're thinking, oh, well, if we get people into some sorts of care, you know, we give them the right medications, then that's going, you know, their symptoms are going to go away and that may be correct. But, yes, it's not addressing the underlying causes. Yeah. And, and the it, underlying causes are leading to these huge wait lists that we've got. And if you think of the underlying causes, whether it's genetics or environment um, the genetic side is hugely influenced by environment if we throw buckets of money at looking after families mm. and little kids and the upbringing of these young people who are going to become our adults we're probably going to deal with the cause much better than we would with the symptom yeah we need to be celebrating you know cultural diversity we need to be celebrating individuality we need to be um uh, moving away from othering people so people can can support each other rather than, you know, um, ending up as a, as a statistic and a symptom. So just quickly, when uh, this is the interim report. Sorry, when was the final report supposed to be handed down? Uh, October. October next, next year. Next year, yeah. Yes, that's a long wait, isn't it? All right, thank you for that. Uh, one other quick bit, and we seem to talk about measles all the time on this programme in the news segment, but it's one of those things that keeps recurring and it's such an important reminder. Currently there's an epidemic going on in Samoa. It's just awful. There have been 39 deaths um, since late October. Um, with thousands of cases of measles, uh, they've they've struggled to get their um, community vaccinated in Samoa, and it's such an infectious infectious disease that we know unless you cover about 90-95% of the population, it will just spread, which is what's happened then. Uh, it's an important reminder for people out there if you're travelling, if you're thinking about going to Samoa, make sure you're covered for measles. Uh, are you all vaccinated? You yeah, can't shrug on radio. It doesn't work very well, Prudence. I'm sorry. It. I had measles when I was well, a kid. Well, I had it as well. But I think that that may not be enough now, is it? If you just, you know, as you get older, you still need to Interesting get boosters. Point. Can you get all, measles twice? We're all, we're all old enough that we all had the, the actual Good. disease, which confers extremely good immunity. Um, when you get the disease, you get antibodies, which are for nearly everybody lifelong. So, yes, you, you are covered. Um, so it's one of those. Anyway, it's a, it's a reminder. It's a disease that's still out there. It is so infectious. Infectious, uh, and we've had a few cases spring up sporadically here in Victoria. Fortunately, it tends not to spread because we do have a high enough rate of immunisation. It is the only protection that we had uh, have um, because there was nothing else. That... And I don't think we appreciate you know, how serious a disease it is. Again, those of us who are old enough to have actually had it and been taken to measles parties and things or whatever, to, yes. you know, where you were actually exposed on purpose, um, it, you know, it wasn't necessarily seen as a deadly disease. It was so seen Dr. as a disease of childhood. Dr Nick, just quickly... I, I just think of measles as, as spots. But what's the symptoms? So it starts off as a flu-like illness, so the ordinary sort of snotty nose and fever and that sort of thing, but fairly quickly a really nasty rash develops with conjunctivitis, those sore, weepy eyes, and this nasty rash over the whole body, and a really sick child or adult. And you're absolutely right, Prudence, because that this was something prior to vaccination. We just kind of had to do it and get through it. Mostly in westernised communities, general health is quite good, and it's not so commonly fatal, but even so, serious illness, pneumonias, brain infections and death occur. It remains a serious illness and particularly in developing countries. 
This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. We're talking about World HIV AIDS Day. Prudence, what have you got for us? Well, yes, yeah, the 1st of December. 1st of December is World AIDS Day. Um, and, um, you know, uh, I guess we were just sort of talking beforehand, really. A lot, I don't think a lot of people necessarily know that that's what the significance of this day is. Um, now, there may be reasons for that. Um, but amongst other things, I suppose, look, you know, we've, if we look at the history, I suppose we're looking back 40 years, basically, now, for, from the days when... When people actually in in Australia, in Europe, and uh, throughout Africa and so on were developing a, um, a various sort of sets of, uh, of autoimmune conditions um, that were quite a mystery. And I mean, it was interesting, I suppose, because of the science at the time of the sort of 1970s, where you know medical science was um, was really quite advanced. Um, you know, the battle against microbes was being won you know this is it we had vaccinations you know we had fantastic antibiotics etc etc so it's like you know we were winning really that whole war and there were sort of a number I think of um, uh, of myths as well around what sort of kind of strange viruses humans could contract and whether whether viruses could cause cancer in humans etc etc and that largely got kind of turned on its head around about the 1980s when the sort of science kind of improved and found out a bit a bit about retroviruses, which is what HIV is. So the what's called human immunodeficiency virus is a is a retrovirus, which is a very specific kind of um, nasty, um, um, you know, not quite an organism, part of an organism really, that um, infectious. And it's an important point because I remember the start of this epidemic. We didn't know that it was even a virus. Yeah, it really wasn't clear what the cause was or where it came from. Yeah. Oh, it's speculated that... it was immune deficiency due to dissolute lifestyle and drug well, taking. Yeah, and that's that's an important element, isn't it? You know, like how did how do we sort of find out? I mean, the. the, the the, the sort of prevalence of the early sort of um, presentation of the disease was, of course, amongst gay men. Um, so that kind of stigmatised the, the condition right from day one. And um, it was really only, I think, once the scale of, of infections and, and the seriousness of the ensuing disease that really, you know, got people really thinking about we may need to do something very serious about this. Um, and I guess, look, you know... Um, we need to do a little bit of health promotion here. It's like, well, you know, so we know it's a virus. We know it's, um, it's, it can be transmitted from one person to another. And it is through those body fluids, right? It's through blood, through semen and various other sorts of things like that. But, you know, and so the main sort of causes, the, the sort of the, the, the sort of vectors that, that allow transmission from one person to another is virtually by and large is sex of some sort or other and um and sharing things like needles through drug use so those are the most high risk sort of um groups of people i think it's probably important to note as well though that you know there have been sort of fears or even um, obviously evidence of, of people getting hiv through blood products so medical treatments for example factor 8 which was used for which is used for hemophilia there was a 30 years ago or so there was a bit of a, a problem with that and with i think uh, donated blood and so on and so, and 
bring us up to date. Are blood products all safely screened now? Is there any risk these days through blood products? Is there ever no risk at all? Um, probably, I, I think it's pretty close to being safe. I mean, I haven't heard of any sort of um, any sorts of issues in the recent past. So They're I pretty think... picky about who they'll take blood on. They, yeah. they won't take mine because I might still be incubating mad cow disease well, 30 likewise. years after leaving the UK. Likewise. And, you know, I mean, yes, there are very strict rules about which require people to volunteer information like have they for, for men I think in particular had they have sex with with another man in the last 12 months etc um, but we can probably talk a little bit about some of that sort of you know that how we control infection and so on um, and I'm happy to do that um, but yes look I mean it's important to understand that it is only those sorts of those sort of situations you cannot get you know HIV um, from hugging someone you know from from shaking hands from door handles toilet seats mouse keyboards or anything like that that have been used by another person with HIV you know it's, uh, it's, it's you, you're not going to get it and you can't get it from blood sucking insects or you know <laughs> mosquitoes either can I just um, I've just you've just reminded me when you're talking about transmission one of the great moments for one of a better turn of phrase in the history of public awareness was when Princess Diana visited an AIDS ward and um you know, physically con- was in con- in physical contact with the um, with yeah, the patients, yeah. and that I, I seem to remember that that opened up a whole. Um, deviation on um, public awareness about how yeah. transmission occurs and how safe it is for you know, 99.99% of we've people. We've got stories of that. And in the early days, you know, I mean, obviously, like even here in, in Fairfield, uh, you know, there was the Infectious Diseases Unit where a lot of um, AIDS patients were. So if they've got HIV, they then progress to this very serious disease. And I think, you know, there are stories of like people pushing food to the Montres, you know, using broom handles and things rather than actually go into their rooms. So the, the fear, which then leads to this massive sort of stigma and marginalisation is something that actually the fear is still there. Have the you, stigma still have there. Have you seen that movie, I think it's 5B, um, about the ward in America that took on the HIV patients and no, the staff it. said the one thing these people need is to be held. Yeah. We have no treatment for them that they're going to die, but we are going to cuddle them. And there was a huge backlash because they said, we are going to touch Mm. these people. Because previously, exactly as you're talking about panel beta, people wouldn't go near them unless they were wearing Mm. spacesuits. And that that happened here too. You know, we can find nurses now who were nursing people in the 80s. And that was the thing that they said was most important, was to actually show that compassion and that humanity. And to, you know, to be fearless, really. Quite right too, thank goodness. But we need more. We still need more because there's incredible stigma around HIV, and um, you know it's still something that if you got if you're HIV positive, you know it's you may not want to tell your family. You might not. You don't want to tell your your work colleagues, and you may not even want to necessarily reveal it to your you know your GP or other people. So it's World AIDS Day today, um, yeah. and almost it should be World HIV Day because AIDS yeah. has become so much less common now that we have effective well, treatment. It is, and it's really interesting that, you know, if we look up the sort of, you know, the, the way that the data collection around health and so on goes, they don't record AIDS in Australia anymore. You know, mm. they record HIV infections. Um, we record sort of blood levels of their people's um, viruses and things. But AIDS is not, because basically it doesn't really happen. Well, if it does happen, it's pretty instantly treatable. So I don't think, and I, there's no mortality for 
sort of AIDS. So is it, is it still tested for, for people wanting to, for, for migrants to Australia? Yes, I think it is, yes. Is it still yes, you still have for? to have an HIV test, absolutely, mm. yeah. So it may and actually be helpful because people are often confused what, what is HIV, what's AIDS. Do you want to just explain what we're talking about yeah, when we so differentiate I mean, between HIV, those two? Yeah, HIV is the, is the, well, the virus is the infective organism that you can catch um, and it invades your body and it's not kind of, you can't get rid of it, that's the one thing. It's not kind of curable per se, um, but the, the effects that it can have on the body subsequently is to sort of really... And a result in an auto, a set of autoimmune diseases. So, your body starts to attack itself. You can, you become very susceptible to other conditions like pneumonia, for example. So, people get sicker and sicker, and that's what that that sort of decline that we see in the people's health is what you know we classify as AIDS. It's a syndrome. It's a whole set of things. It could involve getting cancers or leukemias or all sorts of other things. Um, whereas HIV is a bit like you know the virus that you caught in the first place. So, so we know we can manage the, the 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 conditions. So people who have HIV, the the drugs now that can be given are extremely effective. Extremely effective. So you can live a normal life, actually to the point where any blood test will not reveal. The, the, the virus in your blood. So they are what are called undetectable. So it's gone from being a universally fatal disease when we first discovered yes. it in the late 70s, early 80s, yeah. no effective treatment, to now being essentially a chronic disease that's managed and managed it's, it's, not, it's very, very unlikely to be the thing that kills you. So, Absolutely, so, so, or anyone else. So what's the news for World AIDS Day? What are we trumpeting on this December what are we the trumpeting? 1st, 2019? Right. Oh, look, I think the big, well, the big messages are, first of all, that antiretroviral therapies can now reduce what's called the viral load. So the, the, the presence of virus in the blood cannot be detected through any tests. So um, unfortunately, it's still not a cure, though. So somewhere the virus is lurking, you know, dormant, and if you come off the drugs, it'll reappear. So we know the drugs work, but the are they work. available in communities yes. overseas that need them? Well, in varying degrees. In terms of um, availability overseas, in fact, just at the moment, there's, there's some, there's, you know, some new drug regimes that are becoming available in, like, South Africa and so on. So absolutely, there's, there's definitely a push to get those because it is a, there's a set of world targets we want to get, I think, like 95 percent there's a 95 95 95 set of targets and and even in you know australia and victoria are subscribing to these which is that 95 percent of people with hiv will have been diagnosed they will know that they have that 95 percent of people living with hiv will have an undetectable viral load and 95 percent you know uh, of those people basically going to you know continue that cannot cannot transmit the disease. I mean, that's one of the crucial things now. We are in a position where if you have an undetectable viral load, you can't give the disease to anyone else. So 95, 95, 95, 95. where are we up to? (laughs) We're not doing too bad, actually. I mean, overall, we're at about 80-something, 86, I think, in terms of the final 95 in terms of that. So we're getting there. Those were 20, 30 targets. Right. So, um, not 2095. <laughs> not 2095. No. So, the overall sort of, um, you know, overall it, the targets are for another 10 years. But, but Victoria is trying to push quite hard, um, especially um, uh, around sort of getting a number of these numbers down even by next year, getting to that uh, 95, 90% know their status, for example. So, do we know how many people in Victoria are actually suffering or carrying living, HIV? Living with. Living, living with. Thank yeah. you. That's HIV right positive, right? Yep. And they are definitely it's 
positive living. 7,800 is the sort of estimate based on the fact that there, are, there will be some cases, probably like 10% of the cases, who have not been diagnosed at this point. Um, so, you know, but yeah, we're pretty sure it's 90% roughly, you know, do know that they've got it or not. Um, so that's, um, and we're looking at about, in Victoria, about 300 cases, new cases a year. And is that more or less than we used to get? It's uh, less than we used to get. Um, it's not been great. I mean, there, there, it was about five or 600 cases a year back in the 80s. It dropped quite a lot by the late 90s, and it's been creeping up again, probably due to population growth and those sorts of things as well. So, you know, the plan is, obviously, the real target is to stop new um, infections. So that is about using so antiviral re- retroviral drugs which suppress the virus in people so that they are undetectable which means they cannot transmit the disease and prevention so we've got the good old you, and there's always the condom the condom is probably the number one you know line of defense i hope there's more than one uh, yes <laughs> don't, and don't sh- <laughs> it's a bit like no, not like sharing needles right yeah <laughs> the definitive article is uh, <laughs> distracting but barriers are definitely important and look there are antiviral drugs that can be taken um, that prevent you getting it, you know. So there's what's called PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, which has just about close to 100%, you know, protection against you uh, contracting the infection. And even for people who've had uh, who've had an exposure, let's say they've had a sexual encounter or they've used a needle from someone that they suspect might have HIV, you can get drugs that you can take within the sort of ideally 24 hours, but up to 72 hours afterwards, which are also pretty effective. And the final question on everyone's lips, do we have any idea where we're up to with the possibility of vaccination? Look, I think that's. Um, I think the jury's still out on that. I mean, people have been looking for a vaccination around that for for the best part of what thirty five years. It's a sneaky little virus, isn't it? Well, yes. I mean, it is uh, the very fact that it's this thing called a retrovirus and it kind of sneaks in and does everything backwards um, isn't uh, isn't ideal. But you know, in in view of what the the, the the approaches to the treatments that we've got, the preventions, the idea that I think the target of of stopping any new infections within the next few years is actually achievable. Did so we should eradicate in, it that way. Did you notice in the news, Prudence, that there's a a, a sperm bank being established yes. for? People be positive. I think positive, uh, yeah. New Zealanders are doing that, yeah. and um, yes, because that's quite safe. And I think uh, another one that I mean, would be interesting to talk about, but we haven't got time, is the fact that um, it's it's pretty much now pretty safe for a woman uh, who's HIV positive to uh, get pregnant and have a baby, and the chances of that baby um, contracting HIV is virtually zero now. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Rainbow, seems simple. I think it seems simple. You like your psychologist, you think she's done a great job, so you buy her a little Christmas hamper to say thank you. And she says, oh, that's great, thanks very much. Simple, yeah? What's the problem? Mm, Not simple. Well, damn it. Uh, um, you know, we here, sitting around here, we all work under different codes of ethics. I work under the uh, the guidelines, the ethical guidelines of the APS, the Australian Psychological Society, and any other international guidelines that might apply to psychologists. And the principle that we're looking at here, or the, the over overriding principle of those guidelines, is to do no harm. 
um, and that things need to be for the benefit of the client rather than for the benefit of the practitioner. And in uh, the case of giving and receiving gifts, which of course we're entering the festive season where this is perhaps more likely to happen, um, we have to ask the question, I mean, two questions, I think, you know, what is the intention of the giver and for whose benefit is this gift? Yeah. Okay. Now, if you could answer that question and say, this is for the benefit of the giver, for instance, I'll give you an example of someone who uh, has made, uh, who has uh, been engaged in uh, therapy and uh, has a, a great relationship. I mean, that's one thing about this, that someone is likely to do this, you would think, because they have a great therapeutic relationship formed with their practitioner. Not always the case. They may be trying to forge that great relationship by giving a gift. Of course, that's not going to work. Um, uh, but they may, uh, for instance, make some jam and decide to give some to their therapist. So in essence, there is little cost here in terms of, you know, it's not, not costing a lot of money. And they, they are giving it with love, I guess. And who are we to sort of throw back them back in that, their face and say, reject it and say, I do not receive gifts. Some people have a very clear line on this. I never receive gifts, never. Yeah, but what about the person who is the client that is upset because their gift has been rejected? Yes, it's all very well to say I never receive gifts, but unless you have that on your business card, the client doesn't necessarily go no. And so she turns up with a pot of homemade strawberry jam to say, "I just wanted you to have this because it's been a really helpful year, and I'm grateful for everything you've done." It's just a little token, yeah. and you say, "I can't take it." Yeah, what do you do with that? Um, Won't some people be incredibly insulted that you have actually turned down something that they're offering you, which is part of their, it's the way they've been brought up or it's part of their culture, is that you acknowledge that somebody has done something for you by giving them a, you know, a gift. I mean, they probably know that obviously they paid you, um, but this is something you know, outside the bounds of those sorts of you know, formal contracts and it is something that they're actually giving you and it's, it, it's the polite thing to do to receive it gracefully. That was terribly English. <laughs> it's, it's the polite thing to, to accept it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm, I'm saying, that in some cases, if you look at, look at the, the person and think this would upset the person, mm. that, um, th but nevertheless, we're not talking about a, a, a friend relationship. We're talking about a very specific relationship that may be changed, this is the argument, mm. it may be changed by the um, acceptance of that gift. So can I that ask... it changes what, the relationship. So can I ask, what does the Australian Psychological Society say about gifts? Does it well, instruct your practitioners what to do? Their, their guidelines. And what do they say in their right? guidelines? Well, I'm the, the guideline is that you do not do anything to change, to affect the therapeutic relationship, that it will impact the relationship change the relationship i would say saying no to a, a, a jar of homemade jam might bugger up the relationship completely exactly this is why they're guidelines so can i keep my jam well it, it's up to you but you need to know exactly why you're keeping your jam because i like jam 
Okay. Well, you're not a psychologist, are you? <laughs> I, I noticed, Dr. Nick, because I'd like to bring throw this over to you, if I may, as a, as a as a general practitioner, as a as a medical practitioner. Would do you accept gifts? So I'm genuinely very interested because we have similar kind of guidelines that are, are vague, um, and it, it's a very common practice in some cultures. Uh, it's not a particularly Australian thing to do to give your healthcare provider a gift at Christmas, but every now and then people do. Um, but there are some cultures where it's a more accepted way of doing things. Um, and I have um, some patients from the, the Indian subcontinent um, who seem to feel that this is an expected thing um, with their healthcare provider. And I'm not, I still don't know whether this is something they feel would somehow make them seem in disfavour or something if it didn't happen or or what the cultural expectation is. But it's very hard when a bottle of wine arrives at the front desk with a card on it and you may not even have seen the person. Uh, what am I going to do? Ring them up, get the staff to call them and say, I can't take this or quietly give it to charity and not tell them? Um, I, I, I find this a very vexing question. So I need your guidance, please. Well, it's, 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 your, it's your decision to decide where your ethics sit. And I really like jam. You really like jam. I'll come back to that question to do no harm and for whose benefit. Is this for your benefit or their benefit? I mean, if it's for both your benefits, hooray, you could say, yeah. But if it's just for your benefit and that there is some intention behind this that is kind of um, trying to please you, yeah, I mean, we could also argue that maybe this becomes a thing, a subject that you address in therapy, in my situation. Yeah, I, was, yeah. I was just conjuring the scenario where you've just spent a year in therapy and um, the main issue that you're dealing with is, you know, your overwhelming sense of neediness through life. And so then you turn up at the end of the year with a gift and the therapist turns to you and says, I don't think we've really dealt with that neediness. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. You know, and what would it be like? What yes, would you're it stuck be like? with me for another year. Yeah. What would it be like to not give a gift for you, perhaps, yeah, might be right. the question. Yeah. Um, and it, 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 to broaden this issue, again, coming back to you, Dr. Nick, because um, it doesn't really happen in psychological circles, but when you are given gifts by drug companies. Well, that's an easy one to answer because two things have happened. One, uh, I never accepted anything from drug companies, full stop. So, uh, and secondly, drug companies have essentially been banned from giving us anything in recent years, which is okay. fantastic. Yeah, uh, it should have happened long ago. But they can't now even give us a, a mug with a, a medication name on it. So, so the, and the other side of this, the other side of this is is whether you ever give your clients a gift. Well, I think that's important, isn't it? If you're yeah. going, if you're really thinking about the sensitivity of how you know how a particular individual might be interacting with you that it, it could be appropriate you know do you acknowledge the end of a year's worth of therapy or so I mean I do, I do know therapists from who will give um, clients some small sort of gift they might give them a little book or something you know a journal to, yeah or something to to keep them going and that, that kind of maintains some connection with the relationship that's been established and that would be for the benefit of the client. Mm. There is, of course, a but do we think about that enough? I don't think you know. Probably don't. Well, we don't think about it much. I mean, there's a huge difference. I'm 
presuming between um, a patient maybe who's been going to a doctor for a hip replacement and they've had surgery, it's gone very well, they're not psychologically uh, vulnerable, they're seeing someone who's done a good practical procedure, they're grateful, they're happy with how it's turned out, they may be saying, I won't see you until I need the other one done in 10 years' time, and here's a bottle of wine to say, thanks very much for doing a good job. Do you see a difference between that kind of gift-giving, where it's really a kind of acknowledgement, maybe even a closure for an episode of care, which is not about psychological vulnerability, and the sort of work that you do, which is more about people's mental health? Well, let's, let's go back to the changing of the relationship, that if someone uh, gives you a gift and you accept it um, as, a, as a psychologist, counsellor, psychotherapist, however you um, practice, um, and that that client has the expectation that that means that you are closer in some way or it signifies mm. a closeness between you that actually isn't appropriate to your, to your therapeutic relationship, it's a problem to accept it. Uh, how do you know that? Well, if you've worked with the client for a period of time, you would like to think that you would have some idea that y- you, would, you, would, you would know that. And again, coming back to what panel beater says, do you then bring this into therapy and talk about that gift. I mean, often I've had the experience where clients have asked me before they gift, do you accept gifts? And I will say no. And that's, you know, they, they have an understanding that perhaps that's not appropriate. And others that leave it somewhere or give it and have in the past said, um, I don't accept gifts, but I'd like to accept this on behalf of the practice and share it amongst, you know, just mm. put the put the chocolates at mm. the reception desk or something. So share that. So acknowledge it and appreciate it, but not take it for myself. And maybe that's some way of chickening, chickening out of actually having to take the responsibility of what I do for this. I reckon there's a couple of factors that could help us, um, you know, set guidelines. One of them is actually determining the nature of the gift. So I think it is different. If, if only all gifts were homemade jams, Right, I think it'd be pretty easy. I think we could talk ourselves into that's cool. But they might the, the, be poisoned. <laughs> they might be poisoned. But the problem is, you know, in the sort of society we live in, you know, the consumerist commodified society, you know, there's gift inflation and um, gifts are, you know, bottle of wine can be, you know, it's probably not a cask of wine, but it's going to be a bottle of wine, and, and then there's a there's a whole scale on the cost of that wine, and there are a bunch of patients who would perhaps would like to give their medical professional um, uh, some kind of gift but just don't have the financial capacity to do so and I think that so there's actually it's the people who can't that are actually should be involved with thinking about how you'd set guidelines the other one might take a lead from the way politicians deal with gifts right so there's a there's a, a dollar value threshold above which you have to declare it um, and so maybe we could say, say with medical professionals, twenty-five dollars. Um, anything above twenty-five dollar bottle of wine or something, then you have to declare it. I, I don't in. think that you can apply that in a ther- in a psychologically therapeutic environment. I don't think that works at all. How so? Well, because it it sort of bypasses intention or benefit. You know, mm-hmm. 
And you've got to weigh each one. I don't, I don't, the guidelines can only be guidelines. I mean, I think the, from my experience, the, the client who's perhaps, you know, seeing me for a last sort of session or something, you know, yeah, three weeks before Christmas and gives me a small box of chocolates. It's like, you know, that's happy Christmas. Bye. Um, probably not a problem. I'm not going to shift that back. Yes, when, as you sort of said, if someone asks, the very fact that they're inquiring is an ideal opportunity for you to say, no, I don't accept gifts. Yeah, that's like, easy. Yeah. That's the easy. That's the easy what situation. Do you, yeah. I know. Um, I, the way that I look at it for myself, and um, whether it would be interesting enough if this connects with you guys, is that I would never give um, gifts to somebody I have a financial relationship with. Right, just just as a matter of practice, because I would worry that then they would treat me differently. So in fact, it's the it's the flip. I don't want to be treated differently, therefore I don't mm. give gifts because I don't want to put that at risk. Whereas, and which I guess is the same way of saying in a different set of words that gift giving is cui bono. It's you know it's who benefits and it is the giver. Yeah, that's right. And a lot of people, a lot of clients do want to be treated differently. They do want to be special. Mm. So can I ask you then, final question on this, uh, if a gift arrives and uh, it came through the post or something like that, so you don't have the opportunity to say to someone face to face and the gift arrived, you think, oh my goodness, I can't accept this, but it's already there. Do you have a, a sense of how one deals with a gift that you feel you can't accept, but which has already arrived? And you're not going to go to the the post office and send it back to them. Exactly. So you're saying. I think that a a gracious thank you to them and explanation don't do not usually accept gifts and will what you might do with that gift if you're not accepting it rather than send it back. So for people out there listening, I hope that's clarified. (laughs) Not at all. It's not clear. It's grey area. Exactly. It's a very grey area. It's a complicated one, isn't it? But uh, I guess the the point is that uh, if we're thinking about giving a gift to our healthcare provider, it's probably not a bad idea to think, uh, why am I doing this? Uh, well, uh, no, it's not. Hmm? It's not the giver's responsibility. It's uh, our responsibility. I know. I'm trying to shift the responsibility no, back. No, no. <laughs> anyway, just to remind, I really like jam. Uh, <laughs> You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And in our final segment, I've, I've, I love these things which come up and sort of bust what's happening in medicine um, because the Medical Journal of Australia, that august organ uh, of medical expertise, just produced an article uh, about the value or otherwise of calcium and vitamin D supplementation. Uh, now, I've been around this field for long enough to be very interested in this because if you go back to when I started in general practice in the 80s and the 90s, no one was measuring vitamin D. It was just not an issue. And then all of a sudden, sometime in the last 15 years, uh, it kind of exploded. Everyone got interested in, in what was the role of vitamin D. And just a simple example, uh, in Australia in t- the year 2000, uh, we spent in Australia a million dollars testing for vitamin D. That was the total cost in the country for the pathology test for vitamin D. Um, 12 years later, it was $140 million. Gee. Yeah, and the number of people you know that come back from the GP and say, oh, I've got a vitamin D deficiency. Yeah. You know, so it's being measured all so the time. there was a 94-fold increase in just over 10 years in the amount of vitamin D testing. And I watched this with amusement because I thought, why, why have we suddenly got so obsessed with vitamin D? And 
And I, I was sent articles saying here are the 65 diseases that are caused by vitamin D deficiency. And I, my goodness, it seemed like everything from pancreatic cancer to diabetes to asthma and Alzheimer's, everything suddenly seemed, and I say seemed, it's not true, um, but in some of the things I was being sent, it, it seemed like vitamin D deficiency was the, the root of all evil and that supplementing vitamin D uh, was going to save the world. Uh, have you come across this yourselves? Have you been? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are people who write things that's right about cause to do with oh bears that hibernate all winter or something, and you know how you know that how how their sort of blood levels of vitamin D change, and and people are promoting mega doses of vitamin D. Yeah, and if we think about vitamin D um, in a biological sense, ninety five percent or more of our vitamin D we get through our skin through the action of sunlight on the skin. Um, only around about 5% is through the diet because there are very few true dietary sources of vitamin D. What is it in? What, how do we eat it? Yeah, so it's not actually in very much. It's that wonderful phrase that's always used, oily fish. What's oh, an oily, oily fish? fish. Like salmon. And, I don't mind salmon, but herring and mackerel and these sort of... Sardines? Uh, sardines. Okay. So those yeah. sorts of oily fish have vitamin D. So funny enough, it's in egg yolk. Um, and it's in. There are some fortified products. Uh, you'll see some dairy products it's fortified what with about vitamin cod D. Cod liver oil. My mother used to make me have so as a child. Funny you should stuff. say that because liver liver is another source. So cod liver yeah. oil is a source of vitamin D. But but if you think of that sort of oily fish, egg yolk and liver, um, it's not exactly. Well, egg yolk might be, but the rest of it's not exactly part of our most of our daily diet. So most of our vitamin D comes from the sunshine, and yet. We've had this explosion of advice that we should all be taking vitamin D supplements. Uh, I was talking to a, a dermatologist about this on a different radio program. And I said, but we need to get some sunshine on our skin. She said, no, no, sunshine is the, the devil exactly. and we must never get sunscreen. any sunshine at all. Yeah. Sunscreen all the time, summer and winter. And we just take vitamin D supplements um, oh. was her version of it. And, and mm. to me, this is counterintuitive mm. because uh, over tens of thousands of years of evolution we've developed vitamin D through sunshine on the skin and here we are saying we know better we can just take mm. tablets well here, here was the review saying that for most ordinary people vitamin D supplementation does you no good whatsoever Yay. and is that because it doesn't change your blood levels I mean I was supposed to the one question is what is the normal level for vitamin D and what constitutes deficiency. Yeah, we're setting, we actually setting, setting the bar too high. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that, I mean, I don't think anyone actually knows. So within that, there's several really good questions. What are the normal levels? And one of the issues is it turns out that different labs, the way they do the assays, the way they do the measurements, get different results anyway. Um, so that if you take the same person's blood and uh, assay it in different labs, you actually get different results. Um, and a lot of the speculation is that the normal levels, in inverted commas, that we use may actually be inappropriate um, for modern environment. Uh, what we do know, of course, is that in wintertime, uh, our vitamin D tends to drop because there's less sunshine, less exposure on skin. So the question is, what should we be doing? If we're saying most of us don't need to take supplements, um, despite my dermatologist friend saying we should never get any sunshine at all, you don't need that much to get a decent dose of vitamin D. So if you're talking about an ordinary Melbourne summer, 
Um, it's thought somewhere between six and ten minutes on arms, legs, face, so shorts and t-shirt, that sort of thing, uh, in the kind of earlier mid-morning or later mid-afternoon. That's all you need on a daily basis. Winter time, you need a little bit more. You might need 30 or 40 minutes of, of winter sun exposure of that week at midday without, sun. without sunscreen on. With uh, sunscreen... Because people actually, the research shows that because people apply sunscreen so badly, it's it's not actually that effective at stopping you getting spend longer. your yes, vitamin D. Right. Uh, but yes, it, we're talking about um, without sunscreen. So Does, this is this is canning. Sorry, it's, it's canning a whole industry of vitamin D pill dis, uh, production. Yeah. So it, it, if we talk about, there are people in institutions, so people in aged care facilities who are stuck in chairs inside, very rarely get outside, they may need vitamin D supplements. There may be people for cultural reasons who cover their skin uh, and don't get sun exposure. They may need it. And also people with darker skins, uh, that dark skin filters the UV much more effectively and they're less good at making vitamin D, paradoxically. Mm. So people with darker skins Mm. either need more sun exposure to create the same level of vitamin D or they may need supplements. And the question there I would have thought as well, though, is is how much do you need? Like, well, you know, we, we, you can go to the chemist and you can buy, you know, whatever it is, 1,000-unit pills or something like that. But, is, you know, what, what are you supposed to take? How much actually will be beneficial? It's, it's thought that if you do need it, and what we're saying is probably most people don't, uh, but if you do need vitamin D, 1,000 units a day is probably about the physiological amount that we make. There's a distinction, am I right in saying, Dr Nick, that there's a distinction we made between that number that you see on the labels of vitamin supplements and the amount you need because that number on the supplement factors in urination, right? And that's why people talk of these supplements as very expensive urine. Yes. Um, um, so... If if the if the uh, um, micronutrient level required is X, then you want the number on the label to be X times something. And, and this goes back to the question of is this even the right way to take it? Yeah. Because if we accept that our vitamin D is normally made in the skin, how do we know uh, if we're taking all of it through the mouth? What dose do we need? Because yeah. vitamin, it's a complicated bit of biology. You make something in the skin, it goes through the liver, it's converted into something else. We need a gel, don't we? <laughs> a transdermal vitamin D. Patent it? This, this, is the, this is your route to fame and fortune, the transdermal vitamin D gel that has a biological equivalent. Actually, build it into sunscreen. There you go. <laughs> and give it to all my patients for Christmas. <laughs> hey, Dr Nick, is vitamin D something that the body can store? So say if you get a good, decent amount of vitamin D on Monday and for some reason you're indoors for the rest of the week... Um, uh, do you need to be replenishing it every day? or Yeah, not exactly every day, but it's not something we store for very long. Mm-hmm. So for vitamin B12, for instance, we store in the liver. We can store up to two years' worth of vitamin B12. So if we suddenly decide to go vegan and don't have any vitamin B12, we might have a good two years' supply sitting in our liver. But vitamin D isn't like that, which is why we do see levels dropping mm-hmm. over the winter time. Uh, but the other bit that goes with this was that people often talk about calcium in the same context as vitamin D. And what this research showed, uh, just like with vitamin, if you take huge doses of vitamin D, older people are more likely to fall over and hurt themselves. So we've shown that there are negatives to high doses of things. You can overdose on anything. Vitamin D has a higher incidence of falls in older people. High doses of calcium have a higher incidence of 
of stones and things like this and and possibly even cardiac complications so it's not without risk to be doing this uh, so the message out there yes if you're if you if you're an elderly infirm person or one of those other groups we're talking about but for the ordinary person get out there get a little bit of sunshine on your skin um, and and really that's all you need for your vitamin d and then we can take that 140 million dollars that we're spending um, on testing for vitamin d and spend it on something Mental more useful Mental health. Mental health. Uh, anyway, we're, we're nearly out of time and I've lost my piece of paper. So that's it. I've been Dr. Nick. Um, and thank you for listening because uh, we've had a wonderful pan- panellist here, Rainbow Doc Prudence, dear. Thank you so much. Uh, and particularly thank you to Panel Beta for contributions, keeping this whole show on the road. Thank you for listening to us. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.